this is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton, and me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. In 1976, he won the men's decathlon at the Olympics. But four decades later, Bruce Jenner announced that he was now a she and that henceforth she was to be known as Caitlyn Jenner. The claim is sometimes made that gender is a social construct. But perhaps the case of Caitlyn Jenner complicates matters. Jesse Prince has been thinking about the subject of social construction. Jesse Prince, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you, Nigel. Great to be back with you. The topic we're going to focus on is, is everything socially constructed? Well, let's just start by looking at the notion of social construction. What does that mean? The term is used differently by different authors. For me, it begins with the question of how do we understand the world? And from that, we get the notion that our access to the world is always filtered through social practices, through various norms, through methods of inquiry. And you move from that to the idea that our access to the world is filtered through us to a second claim, a relativist claim, that there are many perspectives on the world. There are multiple different ways of constructing or viewing reality that people use. And then from there, you start to realize that some of these, though perhaps not all, have equal claim to truth. That is, there's no independent way to determine which of these different purchases on the world is the authoritative one. So from that view of multiple truths, which has moved from an epistemological thesis to a semantic one, we can arrive at last at a kind of ontological thesis, which is the idea that if there are multiple true theories, then in a sense, there are multiple worlds. We have no idea what it would mean to say that there's a reality independent of these theories, but we can't get any clarity on that notion. So we end up with the idea of multiple socially constructed worlds. Maybe this would be easier to understand with some examples. Absolutely. And in fact, in the literature on social construction, you see examples of almost every kind. There are some who emphasize various social aspects of the world. So they think that the categories we use to classify people are socially constructed. And there are others who try to extend the analysis to kinds in the natural world. So the idea is that the sciences themselves are doing something like construction when theories are developed. One obvious area where people have claimed that a category is socially constructed is in the area of sexuality. That's quite right. We, I think, believe by default, that differences between the sexes are somehow given. They seem to be so pervasive that there's this assumption of naturalness. And it's only through a critical lens, which involves, say, cross-cultural comparison, that people start to realize that these givens are actually contingent. So people like Simone de Beauvoir, very influentially in the second sex, started to argue that gender roles that people play are actually socially determined and not given. She famously said that a woman isn't born a woman, she becomes a woman. That's quite right. And in fact, these views have developed quite a bit in the decades since, and there are many detailed theories of how this process works. Some people like Judith Butler even go so far to say that biological sex, the part that's supposed to be given, is itself a construction. For Beauvoir, at least, sex might be part of our biology. She opens the second sex with a lengthy discussion of biological differences between men and women. Gender is supposed to be a kind of social role, a socially learned role, where we fulfill the expectations that society has imposed on each of the biological sexes. It seems to me quite plausible that gender roles are socially constructed, but what about the physiological underpinnings of 
gender. It seems to me that we are born with certain sort of predispositions to develop physically in certain sorts of ways. Well, the obvious counterpoint to that would be people who feel that they are not born with the right anatomy. So there are people who do say that from birth or from very early in life, they've identified more with a gender that doesn't correspond to the biology. So this kind of a mismatch between biology and gender suggests that the two are quite different. That doesn't yet settle the question whether gender is entirely socially constructed. After all, many of the people who make this claim precisely insist on the fact that their felt gender, the gender with which they identify, is not a mere construction, but is something that they have innately. So one of the curious things that's happened in the social construction literature is a domain like gender that was once the parade case of a constructed category has now been reconstrued as a case where there might be some essentialism. So the idea that, say, someone who is born as Bruce Jenner can say, but essentially, I am a woman, the idea that that can be understood and taken very seriously suggests a shift in thinking here, where now some people are starting to think that gender is biologically based. In some cases, political uses of social constructivism are motivated by people who want to show something. If you're part of an oppressed group and the majority of people in your society are pushing stereotypes on your particular physical features or orientation, you're highly motivated to find some kind of theoretical way to counter that. Yeah, we find politics entering into social construction in, in various ways. Unlike a lot of other theoretical debates, This is one where people are very often motivated to join the debate because of some political end. The trans activist or the gay rights activist who insists that sexual preference or gender identity is not constructed is doing that because they're trying to give legitimacy to their particular social identity. But by the other token, you get some people using construction to engage in various kinds of liberation politics. So, for example, Sally Haslanger has argued that our notions of being a woman, or Charles Mills has argued that our notion of being a person of color, are so associated with negative stereotypes that the fulfillment, the expected fulfillment of those stereotypes has been used as an instrument of oppression, and it's led individuals in those categories to act in ways that don't fulfill their full potential. So realizing that something is a construction can also be used as a means of critique. And of liberation, presumably. And of liberation. So the issues do become quite vexed when we get to contested areas. So within the gay rights community, there are those who say, no, no, this is natural. We are born this way. Therefore, we should not be expected to change. And others who say, this is a construction, so negative stereotypes associated with us should be eliminated. And I think we find these cases coming into clash in in contemporary society in very pronounced ways when we start to compare different categories. So if you look, for example, at gender, where people like Caitlyn Jenner have argued, I'm born this way, therefore I can be in transition and I can become a woman because I'm fulfilling my natural destiny, that looks acceptable. But when we find someone like Rachel Dolezal saying, I'm born black, Therefore, I can fulfill my destiny by becoming black. She was a a woman born to a family of European descent who became a leader in the NAACP, assuming a black identity. People were, of course, outraged. So here we have a case with a category race that most parties believe is to some extent a construction, but that doesn't give her license to simply adopt this constructed role. I think that 
exercise of going through these cases where intuitions clash or go in opposite directions reminds us that it's a danger to go into the business of defending social constructionism for political aim, because in fact, the arguments for the political implications can go in different directions. So in fact, it's better to defend the theory independently on its own ground and then try to determine what follows from that ethically, if anything. Now, there's a wider philosophical issue here. Is everything socially constructed? It seems clear that some things are socially constructed, but that's uncontroversial. But everything, that is an extreme view. Some of the people who have commented on social constructionism within the analytic tradition, people like Sally Hasselanger, who have written about social construction of gender, or Ian Hacking, who's written about the social construction of, of mental illness or social categories like child abuse, have been a bit resistant to accept social constructionism across the board. And in fact, both Hasslanger and Hacking comment that it's very hard to identify examples of any individuals who have thought everything is socially constructed. Now, in point of fact, there are some, and some come from the continental tradition, people like Michel Foucault, perhaps Nietzsche, Vico, if we go back in time a bit further. And even within the analytic tradition, I think people like Nelson Goodman, Quine, some of the pragmatist philosophers like William James might be classified as social constructionists about everything as well. Well, what would that mean, to be a social constructivist about everything? Well, clearly when we talk about humankinds, the idea that we can come up with a label like male, female, black, white, and use that to shape people's behavior in ways that are desirable for those in power, that seems like a process that's very well understood. Human behavior is adaptable through labeling. By recognizing that you've been called black or called female or called white or called heterosexual, the idea that you can follow a script, follow the role set upon you, seems entirely intelligible. We know how the process works. But when we talk about social construction of natural kinds, of the things in nature, people balk because those things can't follow scripts that we've given. So if we have some theory of how planetary orbits go or how microorganisms function or the fundamental particles of the universe, those things don't seem to notice that we've labeled them and there's nothing that our labeling can do to change their behavior. So how could anybody think that the notion of a planet is socially constructed? There are these big lumps of rock out there. They're out there whether or not we're there. I'm probably not alone in having been absolutely heartbroken the day it was declared that Pluto is not a planet. We're quite sentimental about Pluto. Those of us who, uh, who went to grammar school learning the planets and diagramming them always listed Pluto, but actually further, Pluto had the charm of being a somewhat eccentric planet. It had an elliptical orbit, it was furthest away. Pluto was kind of the alternative, cool, interesting planet. And those of us who had affection for it were really crestfallen to discover that the Astronomical Society gave it a new classification in 2006. Others who were saddened included those at NASA who were involved in the project to send a satellite to Pluto to do uh, some observation. The funding that's available for this kind of research is often dependent on classification. So human lives and, and flow of resources can be very intimately tied up up with how we've chosen to group something. Now, how can our classification change Pluto? Now, what happened in that particular case is there were a discovery of a number of bodies within our solar system that had 
similar characteristics to Pluto that had not been known. And the fear was that we would end up with a category of planets that was enormous, maybe 100 or 200 more planets. And the poor children in grammar school who had to memorize nine named planets would suddenly be stuck memorizing hundreds. So there was a clear motive to change the method by which we classify. And with that, the Astronomical Society introduced a new definition of planet. Isn't that just a convention about how we use words? There's still something out there that we call Pluto. There is something we call Pluto. One interesting thing is that this change reveals a lot about how science works. And if you look at the motivations for doing this, they don't seem to be driven by observation alone. They're driven by something like simplicity, not multiplying the number of planets beyond memorability. The actual definition of planet that they introduced included a clause. It's a three-clause definition. But the crucial clause for kicking Pluto out of planetary status is that a planet has to be something that has cleared its neighborhood, which very informally can be characterized as the view that there's nothing within its orbit that it doesn't dominate gravitationally. Now, already the metaphors are proliferating. So we're talking about neighborhoods and dominance. This begins to look very, very social. So this idea that we have this like tough big boy planet who can dominate its neighborhood. And even worse, the terminology brought in to characterize things that don't quite fit this description get called dwarf planets, which is a term that is, is extremely loaded for reasons having to do with disability issues, among others. So we find very, very social motives involved in these scientific decisions, and we find methods of conceptualizing these things to be very bound up with all kinds of very normative, value-laden concepts. Is Pluto actually affected by this? Clearly, in some sense, there's this mass out there in the universe that goes on doing its thing. But the idea that there is an object, a celestial object that has integrity and independence of us implies in some way that we have a purchase on the idea of its existence independent of our theories. So even when we shift out and say, oh, this thing still exists regardless of whether we call it a planet or not, that other characterization, the thing that exists, is itself just introducing other vocabulary. So I think when we talk about the construction of a planet, we're not saying that we literally bring matter into existence. We're saying that the way we conceptualize matter, the way we give it its identity, is dependent on conceptual schemes, and that's an ineluctable fact. There's no way to get around the connection between classification schemes and the world itself. So if you believe in social constructionism, does it follow that the astronomical account of planets is just as true as the astrological one? I think it's a caricature of social constructionism to assume that it's an anything-goes theory. I think social constructionists tend to be a bit more pluralist in their epistemologies, which is to say they think the standards of science might not be the only respectable standards for theory construction. But it doesn't mean that a theory like astrology, which carries very little by way of explanation and prediction, is on the same footing as a theory like astronomy. I think social constructionism finds its greatest confirmation uh, within the sciences. So if you just look, for example, at biology, there are enormously divergent ways of classifying species. And you can classify them by descent. You can classify them by morphological characterizations. If you classify by descent, human beings are closer to tuna than tuna are to sharks. If you classify by morphology or by various ecological factors, that similarity relationship, of course, changes. In our sciences, we find that for different explanatory purposes, different taxonomies serve us better 
Now, when you switch from a comparison within the sciences to science versus something else, things get a little bit thornier. But I think the open-minded or the tolerant social constructionist will say, if you can show that a certain theory can earn its keep through some practical application, that might be used in a, in a case to argue for its legitimacy. Whether astrology has that status is, I think, up for grabs, but my own vote would go against. Is this just a version of that ancient wisdom that man is the measure of all things? Well, aside from the issue of gender politics and that slogan, I do think that there is a danger of construing that as a statement of anything goes. I think the world pushes back, and one of the ways in which social constructionism has been, I think, delimited in recent years, partially coming out of work in feminist theory, is matter is really there, and it knocks up against us. So if you consider cases of construction in science, consider chemistry, for example. When people like Mendeleev developed a periodic table of the elements, they had to choose how to organize these. Are they going to use atomic weight? Are they going to use atomic number? Are they going to count isotopes? Should you include on your periodic table elements that don't exist naturally in our world, elements that can only be created in a lab, or hypothetical elements that we've just posited because there's a gap in a particular arrangement in a particular table. And I think it's at this point where we realize we are answerable to the world. There are, in fact, elementary structures in reality that we can classify and group. It's just that there's no single grouping that deserves to be considered better than various others. Some are better, some are worse, but there are several maybe many, that will be equally good with no resolution between them. That sounds very close to what Isaiah Berlin said in the political and moral context, that there can be completely competing worldviews about value and no absolute true way of living. And the tragedy of life is that we have to make choices between these big values and they are fundamentally incompatible. I think the application in the moral domain is really, for me, the starting place. I came to these constructionist theories in part because I had arrived at a relativist, relativist view about morality. And as you suggest, relativism, again, doesn't mean that anything goes. Some moral systems might work out better for us than others. You can think of morality a bit like law. It's a tool for getting along in human society. But there are different arrangements that are equally good, given our ends. And there are multiple ends that are equally good, but incompatible. So whenever we have the possibility of plural truth, I think we need to accept something like a constructionist thesis. And it just took a little bit more time for me to realize that the same issues or similar issues arise really in every single domain. This is potentially quite a terrifying account of our predicament because most of us feel that there are at least some things which are given. But you seem to be saying everything's contingent. I think if one wanted to summarize social constructionism in, in a word, contingency might be it. So the idea that not everything is given, not anything is given, everything is contingent, is the key mantra. And what lies behind that mantra is something that's at first unsettling, which is that theories we've taken to be given, our common sense, is in fact only one version, only one perspective. So people like Benjamin Lee Whorf, the, the linguist associated with linguistic relativity, had this idea of natural logic, which was the term he used to refer to our assumptions about how the world works that are really just read off the language. And when we realize that there are different languages that parse the world differently, we have this earth-shattering, literally earth-shattering moment where our terra firma, the planet as we've constructed it, the physical world as we've understood it, is seen as contingent. That is, it could be space, could be conceptualized in different ways that are equally good. Now, I think once one gets beyond that dizziness, one can see it as a very useful view. 
It's a view that opens up avenues of change, avenues of flexibility that are quite exciting. With respect to social categories, of course, it can be used towards revolutionary ends that are extremely valuable, like eliminating categories that are used for subordination of certain groups. With respect to science, I think when you get entrenched theories, certain lines of inquiry, certain lines of investigation are just shut off. Funding is not available to study things that aren't classified in ways that, that are of interest within a contemporary theoretical orientation. So to shift our theoretical vocabulary can lead to great discoveries, can lead to new insights, and I think that's an extremely a positive place to be. Jesse Prince, thank you very much. My pleasure. Great talking to you. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.